Jesus himself is the epicenter of all true saving faith. And he is the prize, the treasure, Matthew 13, the reward of those who are his people. So this passage tells us, as we looked last week, that the call of the Christian life is, is singular. That is, we're to fix our eyes on Jesus. Your translation may say, looking unto Jesus. He is the focal point of the whole Christian life, not only for time, but also for eternity. Well, today we'll continue looking at this passage and we'll focus on a theme that emerges in these two short verses, giving us instructions on how to live that kind of life. It uses the metaphor of a race. So we could say how to run the Christian race as we fix our eyes on Christ. And the text gives us three answers to that question. I invite you to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of the living God. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, we ask that you would bless for your glory and for our eternal good our consideration of this passage. Meet with us in the power of the Holy Spirit who loves to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we said the lay of the land concerning the book of Hebrews. If you were to take the whole book, you would find really two main paragraphs. The first paragraph in the first chapter and the first paragraph in the twelfth chapter. The book is 13 chapters long and there's certainly important information contained after chapter 12, especially concerning practical applications of the Christian life, marriage, money, relationships, discipline. Those things still come. But chapter 1, the author says, God himself, the only true one, is the God who spoke in the times of the old covenant to our fathers. But he didn't speak vaguely. He spoke repeatedly many portions. But he also spoke in many ways. Signs and miracles, prophets, events, so forth. God made himself known. There are many times in the Old Testament where scholars call it a theophany. God himself just appeared. If in physical form, they would call it a Christophany, a pre-incarnate, before The times of the New Testament. Jesus appeared in the Old Testament. So the author of Hebrews says all those Old Testament days, God spoke to our fathers in many portions and in many ways. And then in chapter 1 he says, but in these last days. Now the last days, according to the Bible, are the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. So we're living in those days. They were at the beginning edge of that and we're 2,000 years into that. But that's what the Bible means when it says last days. It says In these last days, God spoke to us in a different way, categorically different. He spoke to us in his son. 
He sent his son. And then Hebrews 1 explains who this son is. He's the one that God the Father has appointed to be the inheritor, the heir of everything. He owns it all. Not only did Jesus rightfully become the inheritor, the heir of everything that exists, it only makes sense because, Hebrews 1 tells us, this same Jesus is the one, not only who will inherit it all, he's the one through whom the Father made everything. He created you. Of course he deserves your allegiance and to inherit you as his own possession. But the passage doesn't stop there in chapter 1. Not only inheritor, not only heir, not only the one through whom God spoke, but it goes on to spin your mind in a way that you can't have a category to receive unless you understand what the gospel is. The category shift in chapter 1 is that that same Jesus who inherits it all, who created it all, is the one, chapter 1 verse 3, who shows us accurately who God is. He's the radiance of God's own glory. He represents, represents God's nature. And then the text says, that one, that Jesus, made purification for our sins. To paraphrase, he took his righteous life to a wooden cross outside of Jerusalem. And bore the penalty that you and I deserve for our rebellion against God. He made an atoning sacrifice for your sin. He took your sin. He propitiated God's wrath against you by absorbing it in himself on the cross of Calvary. How can it be? Well, that text in chapter 1 ends by saying not only does he radiate the glory of God and represent the nature of God and inherit and created everything, not only did he make propitiation for our sins, but he lives. Chapter 1, verse 3, he's now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, doesn't that sound similar to our text? Especially verse 2, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, not to repeat everything I said last Sunday, but between chapter 1 and chapter 12, the author's giving argument, apologetic, for why there's no other option for the true Christian life than the Christ-centered life. You must fix your eyes on him if you are in him and if you are to make progress in the Christian faith, resulting in everlasting inheritance of all that Christ purchased for his people. So chapter 1 to chapter 12, he's the great priest. He's the true and greater Moses. He leads God's people out of Exodus. He's the true and greater rest. I'm just going chapter 2, 3, 4, 5. He's the only source, 5, 10, of real salvation. Chapter 5 and 6, therefore you should pursue maturity. You shouldn't be a babe. In spiritual things, you shouldn't only be satisfied with a diet of milk like an infant, but as you grow, you should want the meat of his word. So he's making his argument until he gets to chapter 12 and says, now if you've got any way to wiggle out of this, it certainly can't be truly Christian. Because I've shown you now for 11 and a half chapters, Jesus has to be the focal point of the truly Christian life. A lot of people may call themselves Christians. But a true Christian is one in whose life Christ is central. 
He is the fixed focal point. Well, I said the summary of our six-part series on verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, which really is the climactic paragraph of the whole book. So why we're going to give six weeks to it. I said the summary of that little series, the six parts within the bigger Hebrews series, would sound like this. We are to gladly rid our life of anything and everything that hinders us from a Jesus-focused, gospel-purchased lifestyle. Simply, focus on Christ because He died to give you a life focused on Christ. Get rid of anything that would hinder your focus on Christ. Not get rid of it as in, oh no, God's now a cosmic joy killer and He wants to take away all your pleasure. No, gladly pursue your greatest joy. God created you for His own glory. The thing that will most satisfy you is not sin, not yourself, but the God who made you for His glory. To glorify God is really to pursue your own delight. So the crystallization of verses 1 and 2 is gladly pursue your greatest gladness. Jesus did that for the joy set before Him. He endured the cross for the joy set before you. Embrace all that God is for you in Christ. Well, I want you to let your eyes fall on verses 1 and 2. And I want to just try to give again the handles of this passage, and I'll show you the portion that we'll focus on for today. There's two main ideas. Verse 1 is one idea. Verse 2 is another idea. If you'll look at verse 1, the main idea is run the race. There's three incentives. Why run? How shall I prepare? And how will I keep up the pace? If you just look at verse 1, why should you run the race? The beginning of the verse. Because there's an ocean of witnesses surrounding you. There's a sea of witnesses. There's a cloud of witnesses. That's one incentive. How should you prepare? It's also in verse 1. Laying aside everything that hinders you. Put off all encumbrance. Put off all weight. Put off all sin. How are you going to be able to keep this pace for a lifetime? How are you going to be able to not give up? The answer is, you must have patience. Or some translations say in verse 1, endurance. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. So verse 1, the point is run the race. Why? Because you have witnesses around you. Preparing by laying aside everything that inhibits you. And endure. Run with patience, steadfastness. Then the main point is not what we do or how we do it. It's what, who Jesus is and what he's done. The main point is verse 2. One is run the race. Two is looking unto Jesus. That would be the summary of verses 1 and 2. Run the race looking unto Jesus. Who is Jesus? Verse 2. Do you see it? He is the author and perfecter of faith. What has he done? He endured the cross. What did he do about all the humiliation and scorn and ridicule that came with being suspended in first century Palestine, beaten, stripped naked, bloodied, and people hurling insults at him? How did he handle the humiliation? Verse 2, he despised it. He despised all the shame. Verse 2, how was he enabled to endure such torture? Answer, right in the text, for the joy that was set before him. Where is he now? 
Verse 2, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So run the race looking unto Jesus. Today we'll focus on how we run. The next portions of this series will focus on this great prize. The remaining five parts of our series, counting today in these two verses, will unpack the following five truths. Today, part two, run the race. God willing, next Sunday, part three, Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Part four, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Part five, Jesus endured the cross by the joy that was set before him. And finally, part six, Jesus is seated, that's significant, at the right hand of God. Well, today's focus, as will be the case in all of these sermons, and I pray every sermon ever preached at Grace Church, today's focus is Jesus. Not running the race, Jesus. He is the epicenter of the true Christian life. So I encourage you now to make it your prayer, even as you listen, that the eyes of your heart would be fixed again on Christ. We are going to consider running the race of the Christian life in a way that shows that he is our Lord and Savior. Not to make him our Lord and Savior, but to evidence that he is. All right, there's a dividing line already. And it's good that God brought you here to think about this. Some of you are already in this race. And you need biblical encouragement and exhortation for how to run, why to run. But friends, some of you are not, at, not yet even in the race. Some of you have not yet started looking unto Jesus, therefore you're not looking unto Jesus. There's so much here today for you, especially the hand of a crucified Savior who wants to welcome you in to the Jesus-focused race. Theodore Monod, I mentioned last week, French theologian, wrote in a little booklet we give out around here, only three words, looking unto Jesus. But in those three words is the whole secret of life. You see, the race that we're called to run has a distinct finish line. Christ. He is the goal. Don't tire of hearing it, and may we not tire of saying it. Jesus is the prize. The reason you have 27 books in your New Testament is because four of them explain the biography of the greatest person who's ever walked the planet, Jesus the Lord. And they're designed to show us that he's not only the Lord, but he was crucified, buried, and risen for our redemption. The other books of the New Testament are dedicated to showing what it looks like to live a life in harmony, communion with that great risen Savior. He is the goal, he is the prize, he is the treasure, he is the reward. Examine yourself under that light. You see, real Christianity is about a person. The metaphor is a race. What the author is trying to do under inspiration of the Holy Spirit is to say, your life. Not, do you need to go register for the race? Not, do you have the right apparel? Your life. All of it, every bit of it, focused on a person. God is honored to the degree that Christ is cherished. When Jesus is the constraining ambition of our soul, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, God is glorified. The Father is not jealous when we live for the honor of the Son. He's magnified 
when Christ is elevated in our soul. We proclaim Jesus. Why? So that every man will be complete in Christ. Colossians 1. He is the goal of the Christian life and God is glorified to the degree to the degree that Christ is treasured and pursued. One commentator said concerning the race of the Christian life, he said one of the chief problems with the Hebrew Christians to whom this letter is addressed is that they've set out on their race. By the way, the writer of Hebrews thinks that the recipients of the letter are Christians. He's not suspect of whether or not they're real Christians. He believes that they are. So this commentator said, the Hebrew Christians to whom this letter is addressed have set out on the race, but after a good start, chapter 10, verse 32 to 34, they're now slackening in the will to persevere. Their effort is decreasing, chapter 2, verse 1. Sin is holding them back, chapter 3, verse 17, through chapter 4, verse 1. They need to recover their intensity of purpose, chapter 4, verse 11. Shake off the sluggish mood into which they have fallen, chapter 6, verse 11. Regain their confidence, chapter 10, verse 35. And their competitive spirit, chapter 12, verse 12. Concerning the Christian life, or to use the illustration, the race that all Christians are called to run without exception, there are three things I want us to consider. Number one, if we're to run the race looking unto Jesus, it would help us to know, number one, who else has run this race with their eyes on Christ. That's what verse one begins with. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Point number one, who else has run the race with their eyes on Christ? We could just look back into chapter 11, which of course is why chapter 12 begins with the word, therefore, all that came before that, namely the content of chapter 11, what's been referred to as the hall of faith, the examples of Old Testament saints. And we certainly should look there because that's what the therefore is there for. But if we're going to ask the question, who else, point one, has run the race of the Christian life with their eyes on Christ? I hope you'll be encouraged to know every single Christian who has ever lived. What I'm trying to say is there's not another kind of Christianity. What I'm trying to say is that every Christian who has ever lived, past and present, and those who are to come who will truly be Christians, all of them have run the race of the Christian life with their eyes on Christ. Isn't that a helpful examination for our Christianity? Are the eyes of your faith resolutely fixed on Christ? Or was Jesus good enough for you to get in, but not necessarily attractive enough to you to continue to pursue? It's not biblical Christianity. The cloud of witnesses, your translation may put it differently, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Of course, that's the saints of Hebrews chapter 11. From Abel all the way into the last days of the Old Testament where we find people suffering martyrdom and still remaining faithful. Men and women of whom the world was not worthy. That's what 
the cloud of witnesses is specifically referring to, it's those for whom Christ died. Those for whom Christ proved to be enough. In times of triumph and trial, Jesus was enough for them. They didn't have jailhouse conversions. Christ was enough for Old Testament Joseph when he was in the pit and when he was in the palace. It was Jesus only always. It says that these saints, by the way, cloud of witnesses. Witnesses is the same word translated martyr. People who laid it all down for Christ. That's the kind of people who ran the Christian race with their eyes on Christ that the author has in mind. But it says we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Some translations say, uh, I would say interpretations say watching us. I don't think that's the meaning. I don't think that the Old Testament saints or friends and family of ours who were in Christ who have died and are now in heaven, I don't think they're watching us. I can't find one verse anywhere in the Bible that goes along with the sentimental type of stuff that we commonly hear in our day. I know that grandma so-and-so is looking down on me. Simply not in the Bible. In fact, all necromancy, engagement with the dead in Scripture, is damnable. There's no such thing, as far as I can tell, of heavenly saints watching what's happening on earth. In fact, if they were, it would have to contradict a whole lot of other Scripture that says that there's no brokenness or sadness or tears in heaven how in the world could they look here and not have some of those effects so I don't think it means so great a cloud of witnesses watching us I think it means surrounding us like literally everywhere you look you go to the furthest corner of the world you go to the furthest distance in history and everywhere you look today yesterday near and far chronology and geography, everywhere you look, every Christian you will ever find surrounding us all fixed their eyes on Jesus. That's the point. The Christian race, F.F. Bruce said, being surrounded with so great a cloud of witnesses is not so much those who look at us as those to whom we look. Because they're everywhere, just look. They're surrounding you. You want to know what the Christian life looks like? The Apostle Paul would say, if you want to follow Jesus, 1 Corinthians 11, just watch me. They're surrounding us everywhere. Present, past, near, and far. This also reminds us, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we're asking who else has run the Christian race. Oh, how I have prayed that this would lift a load of guilt that maybe I've even been responsible for putting on you. This reminds us that the Christian race is not a competition. At least not against one another. We're not in competition against other Christians. Every single Christian is an advantage for every other Christian. If you're around some of those kinds of professing Christians who just always make you feel like you don't measure up enough because you're not quite as good as they are at doing the Christian thing, there's probably something deficient in both your perception of them and their perception of themselves. Everyone who is in the race wants everyone who is in the race to win the race. That's real Christianity. And it's why we need each other. Therefore, every local church should be 
filled with a culture of the grace of God. If you're struggling in the race toward Christ, the place you should feel most comfortable saying, I need some help, is in the context of the local church where everybody else is in the same race. Because everyone in the race wants everyone in the race to win the race. It's part of the evidence that we're in the race. So Grace Church specific illustration would be something like this. It's not so much when you show up on Wednesday night to your ladies group, do you try to sit in the corner so that nobody can see that you didn't fill in all your answers in the Behold Your God study. As much as it's a, come on, let's, let's work through this together. Let's put our eyes on Christ together. Let's help each other as best we can find the best way to pursue Christ and treasure him more. We're not competing. We're in concert together. The elders have been praying through lately and showed up at our pray and plan retreat a couple of weeks ago. Better ways that we might be used of God. Lord, please help us to help cultivate a culture of grace here. Not only in our gathered assembly, but in every household pursuing Christ together. Biblically, the Apostle Paul picked up the same illustration, metaphor of a race, and he said in 1 Corinthians 9, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Sounds like a competition to me. He says, run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we and imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. He has a focus. That's Christ. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Interestingly, helpfully, just before that metaphor, Christian life is a race, so forth, he tells us exactly what he's thinking about. 1 Corinthians 9.23, literally the verse right before that. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. You see his constraining ambition? We, let's go after the gospel together. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 paraphrased would sound something like this. You mean so-and-so's running the race? Praise God. How did they get in the race? How did I get in the race? Good. Of all the people God could have put in the race toward his son, fought with his blood, why, am I, why, are, they, why are we here? Even in the midst of all that we're going through, surely together we can help each other to see that Christ himself is enough. He's got to be enough. Let's just look back into the hall of Old Testament Christianity. Let's look into Christian history. Let's look to the furthest corner of the world. Wow, they're all running the race. That's the paraphrase. We're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So the question, who else has run the race with their eyes fixed on Christ? The answer would be all Christians. There's no other kind of Christianity. Knowing others who are running the race, I didn't say just knowing about them. But knowing them, knowing them well, what are their sin tendencies? When do they tend to be most set up for success? 
What are the times and situations where they tend most to fall into sin? Knowing others who are running the race encourages you to take one more step. And it allows others to help encourage you to take one more step. So the first question on running the race focused on Christ is who else has run? The answer is every Christian. Second, how shall we prepare to keep our eyes on Christ? What do we need to do so that we can run this race well? Well, there's two answers given in verse 1. First, lay aside every encumbrance. Your translation may say weight. Lay aside every weighty thing. And second, we're to lay aside all the sin which so easily entangles us, ensnares us, entraps us, chokes us. Lay aside every weight, lay aside every sin. Let's take them one at a time. Lay aside every encumbrance. That's how to prepare to keep your eyes on Christ. Guys, you can't keep your eyes on Christ when your hands are full of things that hinder you from keeping your eyes on Christ. You see, Jesus died and rose again to make us holy. He said so. Ephesians 5, Colossians 1. We're told that Christ washes us in the water of his word. He purifies us. Why? To present us before himself, holy, blameless, beyond reproach. That's why he died for us. And if he died to accomplish that, you can guarantee that when he died and rose again, he purchased enough grace for us to faithfully pursue that goal. The original language, the Greek word, whatever, for encumbrance or weight, anything heavy something that bogs you down these are the things that aren't necessarily sinful that comes in the next statement but these are things that for you maybe not for everybody your measuring standard is Christ not your neighbor these are things that for you you know full well that no matter who else does them without inhibition for you they inhibit your pursuit of Christ and you know it we're such easily self-justifying creatures. Well, so-and-so does it. Again, F.F. F. Bruce helps us. He says, it may well be that what is a hindrance to one entrant in the spiritual contest is not a hindrance to another. Each must learn for himself what in his case is a weight or an impediment. That's the, that's the definition of spiritual maturity. You're able to take the truth of God and where there's not chapter and verse, thus saith the Lord, those are clear. You're able to take the truth of God and apply it to your life in a way that's consistent with the Lordship of Jesus. It's not trying to figure out what all the Christian liberties are and then go exploit them in the name of Jesus. It's trying to figure out what the Christian liberties are so that you can run in a way that sets you up for the most hot pursuit of Jesus. Next time you're at a sporting goods store, guys, ladies, kids, next time you're at one of your favorite sporting goods, athletic stores, I want you to take a look at the running gear. Go over to that rack, go over to those shoe shelves, pick up a pair of the newest running shoes, the latest model, and compare them to all the other non-running shoe category shoes on the shelf. Same thing with the rest of the gear. And you'll notice immediately that they've done everything they can to take all the weight out of them. 
my friend Jeff brought a backpack. I promise you it's not dangerous other than it's very heavy. I said, Jeff, take everything out of it you need for the service. Go fill it up with as many hymnals as you can. And trust me, the man succeeded. There's a lot of hymnals in this thing. And if I'm to take this backpack and put it on my back and enter the December first Saturday of 2015 St. Jude Marathon and try to run with this thing on, I can tell you right now it's not going to end well for me. I'm not going to see the finish line. See, the issue is not, is it a good idea to take the weighty things out of my life that might not necessarily be sinful? It's not a good idea, bad idea question. The question is, are you actually in the race? If you think it's okay because it's amoral, neutral, not necessarily sinful, not necessarily non-sinful, it's neutral, so-and-so does it, if you constantly weigh yourself down with that, it begs the question, are you in the race? Are you in the race? Now, kids love to use that excuse. Yours do too. So-and-so got to do it. In the very first phrase, cloud of witnesses, we are encouraged to look at so-and-so. In the very next phrase, lay aside every weight, we're exhorted to remember that the Holy Spirit is our ultimate guide. It's not does so-and-so get to do it. You look at their life if they're pursuing Jesus and you be a lot like them. But you can't do everything they can do because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you telling you the things that are an impediment. What is the weight in your life? Well, I encourage you during our concert of prayer that's going to follow the sermon today either vocally or privately even right now ask the Holy Spirit what are the things that are slowing down my pursuit of Christ that I should get rid of the Holy Spirit will show you speaking of my kids we were watching together several of the games in the NBA finals that recently concluded and uh, one of them asked me, why do the athletes, when the coach calls them from the bench to go into the game, why do they go to the scorer's table and just before they cross over the half court, uh, the, the sideline, take off their warm-up stuff and throw it on the floor? And then the little uh, trainer guy comes and gets it and takes it back over there. Well, they just hand it to him. Why, why does somebody get a job of, of running back and forth to pick up laundry that somebody's not mature enough to stick in their own chair? I don't know. I don't know why they do it like that. I just know they all do it like that. But you know what they didn't ask me? You know what nobody has ever wondered? Not one time. Not in the history of the NBA. Nobody's ever wondered, why don't they just play with that stuff on? It's the highest tech, lightest weight, dry fit material on planet Earth. Why don't they just wear it when they go out on the court? Because no stellar athlete wants even the lightest impediment in their pursuit of the prize. Ask the Holy Spirit to make you willing to adjust your life to whatever He shows you is the safest path for true holiness.
not only laying aside every weight, but second, we're also in our preparation to lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us. The sin which so easily entangles us, ensnares us. This is not the same as a weight. This is in a category different. These would be the things that are in opposition to the lordship of our risen king. These are actually the things for which Jesus died. How could we, in any sense of good conscience, consider ourselves to be in a race toward Jesus while we're purposefully holding on to the same things that that Jesus died for? Do we really think that we're in a hot pursuit of Jesus when when we reach him, we're going to hand him the things we held on to that he died to set us free from? Lay aside all the sin. Answer that question for me, verse 1. Nope. All of it. I'm not going to categorize it for you. I'm not going to put a Colossians chapter 3 list in there for you. I'm not going to tell you Revelation 19, 20, and 21 what people are going to burn in hell for. I'm just going to tell you all the sin that wraps itself around you like a vine for which Jesus died, get rid of it. James would say, he who knows the right thing to do Chapter 4, verse 17. He who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him, that's sin. Our author is referring to not a specific sin, but to sin itself. John Owen said famously, you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Are you killing sin? Part of the evidence that you're in the race toward Christ is not sinlessness. If that's the standard, none of us are in the race. But it's also not an excuse to fight to be sinless. How do you know a Christian from a non-Christian? Some have said a Christian is simply a repenting sinner. It's the only difference. We're all sinners. Christians are just repenting sinners. Others have said part of the evidence that we're in the race is not that we don't have sin, but that we hate it. We don't want it. Part of the evidence you're in the race, again, let guilt be lifted, let gospel be applied. It's not that you're sinless. The question about whether or not you're in the race really doesn't depend on what you did last Friday night. The question is really, do you want to be free from all sin? Because, as you know, Heaven is going to be that blissful existence where we see the man at God's right hand who died to set us free from all our sin. And on that day, we will be free from all our sin. The Christian longs for that. Romans 6 says it this way. When you were slaves to sin, before you became a Christian, when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? 
For the outcome of those things is death. That's where sin leads. But now having been freed from sin and having become a slave to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I wonder if the Holy Spirit between the lines of my phrases is convicting you today of sin that you know that you need to rid your life of. If so, take heart. That's his love. The person in the pew right next to you might not be convicted and might not be broken or burdened, which, which would be an evidence of his judgment. But if you feel convicted, don't run from God, run to him. It's an expression of his love. He's saying to you what Nathan said to David in the Old Testament. You're the man. You're guilty. There's nowhere for you to hide. You've been exposed. Don't just be scared that you got caught. And don't just be sorry that you got caught. Be broken that you offended your God. And ask him to restore his honor in your heart. It may be not only that the Spirit's convicting you right now of known sin. And you might be saying, he is convicting me, Jordan. And I feel the weight of it. But I can't deal with that because everybody in my life thinks that I'm moving forward. Everybody in my life thinks that I'm running the Christian race. They think that I'm the one setting the pace. Does it look like you're moving forward with the people of God? But in reality, you're only like Rachel, Jacob's wife, Genesis 31, who was still holding on to her household idols that belonged to her father. You see, your sin not, never only affects you. If you think that you're running the Christian race in a way that's helpful to other people, therefore you don't want to deal with your sin that you know the Spirit's convicting you of, guess what? You're not really helping other people. The sin of Achan, Joshua chapter 7. Israel was defeated at a location called Ai. And it didn't end well for Achan. Whose sin alone affected the whole community. We're not moving forward because no matter if the world tried to commandeer this statement, the Christian race is the one where no man is left behind. We can't go forward if you won't go forward. The seven churches in the book of Revelation. I wonder how many of the members of those local churches, Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, so forth. I wonder how many members of the church at Laodicea it took for the Lord Jesus to say to them, I have this against you. Not to the individual, the church. A church of 116 members, does it take three or seven or 50, or 75, or 115, before the risen Jesus says, I have something against you, Grace Church. Let's not find out. We can't go forward if you won't go with us. Are you running toward Christ? Are you laying aside all the sin? Specifically, is there a brother or sister in the Christian faith, in this church especially, with whom you are not reconciled. If so, you might be in the race, but you're limping at best. Or are you running alone? Does anybody really know you? 
know you. Could somebody else tell another brother or sister what your sin tendencies are because you confided in them for prayer? If you're running alone, you can't run well. Or are you putting your life positively into the pathway to get knocked down by God's big three, prayer, word, and his people? Are you putting your life in that pathway? Jordan, I'm a Christian, but all that serious Bible study stuff and all that serious prayer stuff and all that serious communion with the saints stuff is just not for me. Listen, I'm not here to pick a fight with you. In fact, your fight is not with Jordan. It's with Jesus. Lay aside all the sin. That's how to prepare. All the weight, all the sin, get rid of it. How are you going to keep this pace for a lifetime? Third and finally. Verse 1 tells us, if you fix your eyes on Jesus, here's the package. Be patient. Build up some endurance. And just keep running. It's not a grit your teeth, willpower, bootstrap religiosity. Not that kind of endurance. I'll show you I'm serious about. It's not that. It's perseverance. Because Jesus, the Lord of the universe, died and rose again so that he could preserve us. That's the way chapter 12 is going to say it at the end. The beginning, you run with endurance. The end, he preserves you. Not you persevere, that too, but he actually keeps you. Part of the way we know God is preserving us, in large part, is we're persevering. So how will we reach our prize? Number three, we will run with endurance. You see, Jesus purchased perseverance. It's part of the gospel package. He died. He shed his blood to purchase the grace we needed, not only to get into the Christian life, but to continue on in sanctification. Run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. So in community, looking at Christ. Laying aside hindrances, looking at Christ. Laying aside sin, looking at Christ. Until one glorious day, you are looking at Christ. I've run in a few events, if you want to call it running. I'm a novice at best. I hear all these runners. I've read a couple of runners' magazines, and they talk about the joy of looking at the scenery and uh, breathing patterns and way to adjust your gait and your landing. Are you pronate and da-da-da-da-da. They're talking about all this stuff that doesn't make any sense to me because they're running for scenery. I'm running for survival. They're talking about breathing patterns, and I'm like, am I even going to make it another step? But I will say this. In the few events that I've run in, like paid money, got a T-shirt, went and ran the thing, it's so different than running solo. It's a totally different experience. Now, I enjoy both, but this passage is not both. Being with others pushes you to persevere. Endurance comes in 
a bundle. It never comes alone. Perseverance is a group race. The first time I ran one of these longer events, it was a half marathon that finished in AutoZone Park, the baseball stadium downtown, and you ran in through the outfield fence. They had the gate open. As I was coming down past Sun Studios and turned the corner and you could see into the seats of the stadium, the closer I got, I expected the cheers from the relatively full lower bowl, bowl of that stadium to get louder. But my mind was playing tricks on me because the closer I got, not only did they get louder, they got exponentially louder. They got like stand on their feet, raise their hands, go, cheer, chant louder. Now I'm in a group of hundreds of people running this thing. What I didn't realize until I made my way in is that the half marathoners went this way around the warning track and the marathoners went this way around the warning track. If you want to know how slow I went, they were cheering because the marathon finisher crossed the finish line a couple seconds before I crossed the half marathon finish line. They were cheering for him, not for me, as he comes strutting through for the prize. I know this. When those people were cheering and I thought it was for me, I picked up the pace just a little bit. I'm telling you, in the Christian life, I can't speak for other churches, and I am terribly sorry for the deficiencies of this one, but I promise you, this church wants you to win. I promise you that. If your marriage is struggling and you don't know who to turn to, I'm asking you to come talk to one of your pastors. We just saw people celebrate 50 years, and we applauded them for good reason. I'm sure they would tell you as quick as I can, whether it's 15 or 50, no marriage is without, not, no marriage is without challenges. Do you need help? There's a lower bowl full in a baseball stadium called Grace Church cheering for you. We want you to win. Are you having parenting challenges? Not the normal ones, but like quick fuse, blow up, anger. People see things that aren't consistent with the fatherly heart of God. Find somebody in your grace group. Talk to another mom. Seek out a dad. Are there sin challenges that are habitual, crippling? Use the word from verse 1, ensnaring you then I'm telling you, we want you to win. We believe that Jesus is enough to set us free from the habitual patterns of sin, 1 John. So find a brother who will pray with you. Ask a sister to hold you accountable. Come to one of your elders. This church wants you to win. Everybody in this race wants everybody in this race to win this race. And God willing, so long as I'm one of your pastors and I serve with the grace-filled brothers that I met with this morning and prayed for a whole bunch of you at our elders' meeting. So long as we're your pastors, so help us, God. We're going to pray and seek to cultivate a culture of grace where you can ask anything you want about Jesus and when you got doubts about whether or not even God exists, this is a safe place for you to find somebody who wants you to win. Here's the conclusion. Not only do we have a sea of witnesses around us, 
Not only are we commanded, it's not a suggestion, put off the weight, put off the sin. Not only are we to keep going with endurance, perseverance, patience. Some of you got to start this race for the first time today. The reason you're not looking unto Jesus is you've never looked to Jesus. Pastor Nathan began the service making comments about what happened in Charleston, South Carolina. I preached each night this week for a student event in East Memphis. That atrocity happened in Charleston on Wednesday. I had an illustration planned for Thursday until 2 p.m. Thursday when I got a text message with a link to a comment that was put on a social media site which totally changed the illustration. And some of you have seen the comment. Nine people died in the shooting. One who got shot eight times and didn't die was the only person Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m. to have commented on a photo of the shooter on Facebook. The only comment. You should go read it. I'm not a fan of the sinner's prayer. I don't think praying a prayer saves anybody. Jesus saves people. But in this comment, this guy who got shot eight times less than 24 hours before writes on the shooter's picture. You hadn't been arrested yet. You might have your phone with you. You might be able to look at this. I want to tell you there's forgiveness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Come to Jesus. Where do you get that? The world doesn't have a clue what to do with the videos of the family members saying to the guy on the court video, I forgive you. You just go read the comments on the social media different venues. And people think that they're lying because they're saying that. I'm telling you, the gospel changes a man from the inside out. I don't know how to explain it in full detail, but I've experienced it. The love of God for us in Christ will change you. And you would want even your worst enemy to taste the grace that comes from that fountain. And some of you need to come to Christ today. Right now. Lay down your arms. Turn from your sin particularly your self-love and ask God to make you love Jesus more than you love anyone or anything else including yourself and believe that he died so that you could have him forever perseverance in the race is the evidence that you started to run it at all have you started to run this race one of the shortest sermons of all was three words long the Lord Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, remember Lot's wife, the whole sermon. Interpretation, don't look back. Keep pursuing Christ. I'm enough for you. That old city that I brought you out of, it has nothing left for you. It's making you promises that it can't fulfill. Remember Lot's wife. She turned around and became a pillar of salt. Don't turn around. Don't look back. Keep pursuing Christ. It's not a pep talk. It's gospel grace. Jesus said in Matthew 10, those who persevere to the end will be saved. Are you saved? I like the way Charles Spurgeon put it. The day will tell it. I believe we can have assurance of our salvation, and we should. But if you want to ask Jordan Thomas if he's saved, I want to say to you with fear and trembling because it depends entirely on the grace of God and not my effort. The day will tell it. Yes, I believe I'm in Christ. 
But if I defect from the faith, if I deny Jesus as Lord, if I quit pursuing him, then don't you ever believe I was saved in the first place. Fourth fourth century Christian lived in the 300s, just a few hundred years removed from the resurrection of Jesus. John Chrysostom, his name literally means golden mouth because of his preaching. Chrysostom said, Many of you have many times been spectators at the Olympic Games. And not only spectators, but also enthusiastic partisans and admirers of the competitors. You know then that both during the days of the contest and also all night long, the herald thinks of nothing else and has no other care than that the combatant should not disgrace himself when he goes forth. He doesn't want to embarrass himself. He wants to do well in the competition at the Olympics. If, therefore, he who is about to engage in a contest before men uses such great forethought, much more will it befit us to be continually thoughtful and earnest, since our whole life is a contest, a race. Let every night, then, be a night of devotion. Let us be careful that when we go out in the day, we do not make ourselves ridiculous. And would that it were only making ourselves ridiculous. But the judge of the contest is seated at the right hand of the Father, diligently hearkening lest we utter any false note, anything out of tune. For he's not only a judge of actions, but he's a judge of words also. Let us watch through the night, beloved. We also have those who are eager for our success, if we are willing. Therefore, I exhort you, let us lay aside all things and look only to one. As we strive to obtain the prize and to be crowned with the chaplet, the wreath, the laurel, the crown, let us do all that will enable us to attain the promised blessing. May we all attain them in Christ Jesus our Lord. To whom the Father and the Holy Spirit, to whom with the Father and the Holy Spirit, be glory, might, honor, now and forever, world without end. Amen. Father, I pray that for your glory, we would lay aside every weight and every sin which so easily entangles us. That we would be mindful That all Christians in all times and all places have also looked to Jesus and he has proven to be enough for them. And that we therefore would focus on Christ and run this race of life toward Jesus with perseverance, with endurance. And by your grace that we would do that together. You take a moment and silently reflect on the things that you've heard. Maybe turn your reflection into a prayer. The Spirit knows how to lead you better than I do. After a couple minutes, the brothers will lead us in song. You deal with Jesus.